Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jaja Run Country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week, we'll hear from two different picket lines. First, workers from RMIT University in Melbourne after more announcements of job cuts and hospitality workers fighting for their right to secure and safe employment. But first, some union news. The Offshore Alliance has this month demonstrated its strength and tenacity by securing the first ever bargaining process for Australian Worker Union members at Legioneering Australia. Due to the highly casualised nature of this employer's workforce, the Alliance was unsuccessful in its first bid to secure an order from the Fair Work Commission for the company to start bargaining with its offshore maintenance workforce. Undeterred, the Alliance made another application to the Commission only four weeks later and was successful in securing the order. The effort of this order is to force Legioneering to commence bargaining for an enterprise agreement to cover its offshore maintenance workforce. The Alliance will be looking to secure an EBA that will deliver increased pay, better conditions and, most importantly, job security. The order comes after months of work by the Offshore Alliance, made up of the Australian Workers' Union and the Maritime Union of Australia, and backed by the Electrical Trades Union, who took on Legioneering Australia, a maintenance and engineering company specialising in the offshore industry. After suffering an early setback, the Alliance worked tirelessly to secure this outcome with the support of its members at Legioneering, who strongly backed the call for enterprise bargaining to begin. Daniel Walton, National Secretary of the AWU, said the employer did not want any union involvement on its sites and took a hardline stance against the commencement of bargaining for an enterprise agreement. They were quite happy with having a casual workforce who they could dictate pay and conditions to as they liked. That suits the company, but it's not good for workers. Everyone deserves the right to job security and secure terms and conditions of employment. The bargaining process officially started with the company issuing a notice to employees on the 9th of September. The Alliance has already collaborated extensively with members to prepare a comprehensive log of claims that will be presented to the company at the first bargaining meeting which is yet to be scheduled. Mr Walton added, The Alliance is prepared to undertake whatever action is needed to safeguard members' jobs and secure a better outcome. We have already demonstrated to employers in the offshore industry that we can and will secure better paying conditions for workers across the sector, and we hope that Legioneering will do the right thing by its workforce. Our members want and deserve an enterprise agreement, and we won't give up until we secure the very best result. Football Federation Australia and Professional Footballers Australia this week finalised a national team's collective bargaining agreement that ensures remuneration, high performance standards and gender equality will be maintained for the Socceroos and the Matildas during a period of global uncertainty due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The revised agreement, which will continue to carry through to the completion of the FIFA Women's World Cup to be held in Australia and New Zealand in 2023, ensures that Australia will continue to be a global leader in advancing gender equity and pay parity in football by maintaining the principle of sharing revenues generated by Australia's national football teams equally between the Socceroos and the Matildas. 
Guardian Australia reported this week that job seekers will face the renewed threat of benefit suspension after the federal government announced the return of welfare mutual obligations. From September 28th, about 1.5 million people receiving unemployment benefits will need to search for up to eight jobs a month, sign a job search plan and participate in meetings with an employment services provider. That's despite limited job availability amid the COVID-19 recession, with analysis of government data showing there are 13 job seekers for every job vacancy across Australia. Benefit suspensions, which have been paused during the pandemic, will recommence in every state and territory except Victoria, meaning job seekers can have their payments stopped for not meeting these obligations. In the move condemned by advocates who doubt its value and whether it is safe, the controversial work for the Dole program will also return in cases where the government believes it is safe to do so and all health and safety requirements are met. The changes coincide with a $300 a fortnight cut to the coronavirus supplement on 25th of September, a move that may cost the economy $31 billion and 145,000 full-time jobs over two years. Greens Senator Rachel Seward said, We are in the midst of a recession. The jobs are not there and we are basically making people chase their tails, pushing paper to keep this government happy and line the pockets of private companies who are making a lot of money out of the unemployment industry. Since 2015, the government has awarded more than $7 billion worth of welfare-to-work contracts to private employment service providers. Guardian Australia has reported extensively on the blunt nature of the welfare compliance regime, which saw job seekers' payments temporarily stopped 2.3 million times in 2018-2019. Of the 581,866 people who had their payments suspended last financial year, 121,604 were later found to have had a reasonable excuse. Exemptions from mutual obligations will be available for those who can demonstrate special circumstances. The new rules will apply to people on the Job Active Program, the new Online Employment Services Program, Disability Employment Services and Parents Next. In the case of Parents Next, it means participants who are mostly single mothers may have their payments stopped for failing to attend activities that are previously included taking their children to playgroup or storytime session at the library. Although people can have their payments restarted by re-engaging with their job agency, critics argue a delay to welfare payments often leaves those on benefits struggling to afford essentials and cover bills. Hazardous manual handling, or HMH, remains a significant cause of injury for AMWU members working in food manufacturing. Health and Safety Representatives, or HSRs, at McCain's, with the assistance of WorkSafe, have had a fantastic win this month when they issued a provisional improvement notice demanding management increase labour to assist workers experiencing fatigue from high-risk HMH. McCain's management sought to challenge the notice by calling in WorkSafe, but were surprised by their response as WorkSafe supported the HSRs and issued a notice telling McCain's management not only to increase staffing levels, but look at introducing a mechanical aid. Last week, we heard about the ongoing situation that migrant workers are facing during the pandemic and the work that the Migrant Workers Centre is doing to support them. Here's a story that proves the importance of their work within the refugee community. Workers at Polytrade Recycling Centres in Hallam and Dandenong have collectively clawed back $1 million in back pay, having joined together in union to address an egregious case of wage theft and unsafe work. The workers, who are mostly Tamil refugees, were working up to seven days a week, sometimes without breaks, in unsafe and unhealthy conditions. Vimal Sun, 
a former polytrade worker, described tasting blood in his mouth and nose from the crushed glass in the air. He would get chest pain and bloody noses. Another worker, Jayaratnam, was sacked after taking sick leave, having worked 70 to 80 hours a week on night shift for two years. The conditions were brutal, but the workers saw little alternative. In Victorian refugee communities, it is well known that employers will use your visa status as leverage against you. The lack of support services or legal information in community languages leave refugee workers at the mercy of unscrupulous operators. Things began to change when Sachitanantam Sitiravelayutam fell four metres from an unsafe work platform, breaking his leg. The company instructed him to lie about how he sustained the injury. Instead, he contacted the Migrant Workers Centre for help. Sachitanantam was able to speak to Migrant Workers Centre organiser Lavanya in Tamil in September 2019 and received immediate support in lodging a work cover claim. But Lavanya and Sachitarantam also discussed health and safety conditions at the plant. They contacted organisers at the Australian Workers' Union and in the face of fierce opposition from their employer, organised recycling plant workers in union. The workers had previously been too scared to speak up about the health and safety issues at the plant, fearing, with good reason, they would lose their jobs. We were scared to talk to them. As a refugee, it is extremely hard for us to find any jobs. I didn't want to lose my job, so I never raised any issues with management, said another worker. Firing a worker for raising health and safety issues is illegal, but it still happens. In practice, only organised workers in union with trained health and safety representatives are able to exercise their OHS rights. Over the past year, the AWU members at Polytrade have stuck together to demand better working conditions, better pay and respect at work. Workers who have languished on precarious casual contracts for years without leave entitlements have now been offered permanent contracts. Members have reported polytrade to the Fair Work Ombudsman and with the support of AWU officials have won almost $1 million in back pay, wages that the company had stolen from their pockets and their families' mouths over many years. There is a long way to go, but workers are pleased with the progress so far. One worker said, I'm very happy. Our work hours have been reduced to eight hours and five days. Management has changed their expectations of us. They don't force us to work faster or skip breaks these days. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. We've been following the NTEU Fight Back campaign since the beginning of the pandemic, and in recent weeks, universities have announced hundreds more forced and voluntary redundancies. On September 18, workers from RMIT gathered via social media to protest these job cuts and say enough is enough. All of us have sat through that meeting this morning. All of us heard what the executives of the university, you know, their, their frankly atrocious attempts to justify the jobs carnage that is unfolding here. Now, one of the things they said, and they've said it, they put it in writing now, is that they're the only 250 job cuts. That is untrue. And as I said, they must think we're idiots. They must think we can't count. They must think that the members of this union and the staff who work at this university don't include finance officers, accountants, and mathematics lecturers. It's easy to do the maths, right? You don't even need to be a mathematics lecturer. 
300 casuals we know of were gone by April or May. There were 300 fixed term staff who were told they wouldn't be renewed in 2021, even though they expected to be. Not because the work had gone away, but for sheer penny pinching, money saving, uh, you know, uh, profiteering on the part of the university. Then we, of course, we had 355 voluntary redundancies in August. And now in the last two or three weeks, we've been hit with a wave of restructured proposals, which would include forced redundancies of up to 345. Now, as I said, they're saying only 250, as if that makes a world of difference. You know, we're only throwing 250 people on the scrap heap. Well, you know, that's appalling as it is, but show us the figures, show us the numbers, show us where these people are being cut from. Trying to pull the wool over our eyes here. And like I said, they think we can't count. But more than that, why is it that they're so intent on not including in their job cut figures the hundreds and hundreds of casuals and the hundreds of fixed term staff who have been kicked to the curb? Why do they think these people aren't real? Do they think the rent they have to pay isn't real? Do they think the bills they have to pay aren't real? The children they have to feed aren't real? Do they think they can rock up to their landlord, de-scope their rent or disestablish their mortgage? You know, they're living in wacky world and they're trying to pull the wool over our eyes. So it's an inspiring and encouraging stance that all of us are taking here today to say it loud, to say clear, to declare to the, well, they call it the university community. I noticed this morning they referred to the executive community. So apparently we're not all in it together after all. Maybe there are two communities. We're going to send a message to all of them, whoever they are, that enough is enough. No more job cuts, no more restructures, no more rampant casualization, and we are going to fight for every job. First person I want to ask to speak is our branch president, Sam Gibbard, who's going to give us a bit of an overview across the branch at the moment. Take it away. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, look, I mean, I too sat through the Bean TV this morning, and I think what's sticking in everyone's throat is just the absolute bullshit that's um, being put down to us by management. And, and even now, when we see the scale, you know, nine further restructures being announced and only 250 forced redundancies now is the fact that it's been fed a whole load of shit since March, just drip fed information, you know, no clear plan of what was happening. And, you know, someone commented in the comments, you know, why are we finding out what's happening through the NTU and the ABC? It's been a struggle. We've joined together online, you know, from the moment this crisis hit all, all the union members, and it's been probably the one bright thing through this has been the, the solidarity shown by the union members and, and getting information out there and supporting our colleagues. It really stuck out to me as well that you know Martin said oh you know you've got support every stage of this and it's clear that there isn't any support constantly referring people to EAP and suggesting you call a suicide hotline is not supporting staff but yeah, and to you, we've had unprecedented engagement, hasn't been easy. And, and I mean, in a, in a void of any kind of leadership or direction, we've had to fill and credit to all our delegates. I feel very proud of what I've seen um, my colleagues achieving, particularly the support from the casuals where we, we just saw you know, that whole group just get decimated. And we've still got activists that lost their jobs fighting for everyone else, still fighting. And I think that's you know something I don't want to get lost in all that sort of anger and, and frustration with our leadership, because I think in the absence of leadership from them, you all have shown yourselves to be well and capable of filling that void. So we've got to continue that. You know, We've got to keep building what we have here at RMIT and beyond and make sure we don't let any of this pass. I think we need to start thinking about 
real leadership change in our university and beyond. And we need to think about the state of education in this country and how we need real systemic change from the top, from the government. But it starts local and we need to keep doing what we're doing here and then push nationally. Let's keep fighting, comrades. Yeah. One of the most egregious restructures we've seen in this latest rash of attacks is, of course, people know the library. Yeah, thanks, everyone. We just want to quickly detail the impact of what we're facing in the library and what we might want to do about it. It's a particularly brutal attack that we're facing in the library. This year started off really bad. At the start of the pandemic, we lost 30 casuals in April. We lost 13 through voluntary redundancies, through the voluntary redundancy process. And in this spill and fill situation, we're facing 53 positions to be made redundant with 26 new roles being created, totaling 27 staff being laid off. And to put that in perspective, uh, we currently have 141 FTE staff. And so that's a huge portion of our staffing base. And also, in addition, within the last 18 months, we also lost 45 staff through a restructure. So we've just been basically decimated over the past 18 months, which will take us to over 115 job losses in the last 18 months, which is obviously really significant for us. And I don't know how it will be sustainable going forward. And in some areas, there's up to 70% reduction of staff. And in these areas, it's quite often people directly assisting students. And so that, in effect, will make us less accessible to the students through the process. And uh, th there's been a lot of talk about how the collection will or won't be affected. In the, we obviously saw Linda's response. She said that the collection won't be affected, but it, it has already. The numbers show that it's down from 700,000 volumes to 400,000 currently. Almost half of the collection has already been decimated. Positions are being targeted and being made redundant that look after this collection in this proposal. So it's very clear that there will be a significant impact on the print collection. Awaken, break your chains, demand your rights. All the wealth you make is taken by exploiting parasites. Shall you kneel in deep submission from your cradles to your graves? Is the height of your ambition to be good and willing slaves? You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and social justice issues on your local community radio station. We just heard from workers at RMIT University about their ongoing campaign to keep their jobs in the face of cuts and restructuring. Next up, the issue of casualisation has been starkly revealed in the light of COVID-19, but it didn't happen overnight. As we've already heard, factory workers, offshore maintenance workers and university library staff are all struggling for work rights under casual contracts. In the hospitality industry, up to 79% of workers in some states are in insecure work. And this pandemic has shown just how dangerous insecure work can be. This week, the Hospo Voice Secure Jobs Action Group hosted an online picket calling for job security. We're going to hear from casual workers about their experiences of exploitation and discrimination and how we can create secure jobs in the hospitality industry. So what we're going to be talking about today is uh, insecure work and the rampant casualization that we have in our industry hospitality. Um, I myself am a part-time worker, um, albeit for a very dodgy employer grill, but I'm very passionate about the, the barriers, the, the kind of structural casualization places on workers in this industry. 
And I believe that a better industry is possible through the creation of secure and sustainable incomes for everyone in hospitality. And I think this is increasingly pertinent because of the, obviously the pandemic and the kind of looming economic crisis that we face. I think building a industry that's predicated on secure jobs is integral to how we're going to survive. Hi, my name's Sam. I am a chef. I work in Brisbane been a chef for eight years and I have had one secure job in that whole time. To me, casual labour is an idea sold to workers. It's supposed to be more flexible, people who are transitioning. But really what I've seen is it's a way of exploiting the people who are already insecure and then they get them into these insecure jobs where they can be exploited because you now they have no security. So they're underpaid. If they complain about it, they're fired. 40% of women are casual and they can experience sexual harassment. If they stand up to it, they don't have a secure job, so they have their shifts cut. And a lot of young people are casual. I think most casuals are young, between 18 and 24, 40% are casual. Young people, you know, they're not used to standing up for themselves in general. If they do, they get their shifts cut and they're fired. It's not really a good way to start your career. It can cause a lot of mental health issues. So Sam, you're now in a full-time job and how does that feel for you to have finally landed like a secure income and a secure employment? Uh, it's great. I can finally think about things like buying a house and starting a family. If I was in an insecure job, that would be the last thing I'd be thinking about. I would go as far as to accept a salary scam in order to get secure work when I was adopting those goals. Like the job before this, it was a secure job, but it was a salary that was underpaying me about $15,000 a year. I accepted it because my girlfriend wanted to start a life together, which you can't do when you have insecure work. It's too difficult. Obviously, Sam, the way that casual work is usually sold to people is because uh, obviously casual workers, are, in theory, get a higher wage. So in theory, casual workers are paid 25% above the base rate as a kind of loading to accommodate for the lack of leave entitlements and the lack of job security. Do you think that a 25% loading at a base rate is a fair deal for workers? I don't think it's fair because they don't get sick leave, which as we've seen at the moment is extremely important, both for the individual and for society. You know, people can't get their sick leave to go and get tested at the moment. So they're spreading it throughout the workplace. And also they don't get holiday leave. They're told they can take holidays whenever they want and they save for it. But a lot of the time you come back to no job. And if you've experienced that before and then you're in another insecure job and you want holidays, you work until you burn out because you're afraid of losing your job because you need a holiday. And with young people in that situation, it can cause lifelong anxiety about job security. And so how can we fight for uh, secure jobs in our industry? I would start by petitioning the Fair Work Commission, change the award to make transitioning to full-time permanent positions or part-time permanent positions, uh, make that a simpler process or possibly a mandatory process, along with helping to build power within the union so that we can do industry-wide or workplace-wide EBAs to make permanent conversion mandatory, have um, ratios of how many people can be permanent versus casual in workplaces. Arise, ye prisoners of starvation, fight for your own emancipation. Uh, so I'm originally from Geraldton, West Australia. I made 
the move to Hospitality Central or COVID Central as it's known now, Melbourne. I've been working everywhere from front of house, started off as a waitress, went a barista, worked as a cocktail bartender. I've done management, events coordination. I've done the whole kit and caboodle. And not once since I started working at the age of 14 have I held down a permanent position. So I think that kind of speaks to more about the lack of availability of permanent positions rather than the inability to find a job that is secure. So Rackers, um, obviously these uh, very precarious conditions kind of affect different workers in different ways. And we've kind of taken the position in our action group meetings that the lack of guaranteed hours that results in you just kind of being phased out by your boss by uh, no longer receiving shifts. This kind of inordinately affects women. Could you just explain that for everyone? Yeah, well, as, as Sam was saying earlier on, you know, 40% of women are working casually. Well, as a fact that, and I do want to take this moment to say I will be talking about sexual harassment. So I do apologise if this is triggering. 89% uh, of women in hospitality industry are sexually harassed. And when you look at the numbers, there aren't the exact same amount of sexual harassment cases as what they are actually going to court and actually being reported. This can come down to many factors, but one factor which I have found myself personally in is when I have experienced this, I am worried about bringing it up with my boss or it has a negative impact on the venue and their image that I am then put in a very emotionally and physically degrading position just so I can pay my rent, my bills and afford to eat. And I'm not the only person who has been through this. It's a tough industry and we can all accept that to an extent. But when you're afraid of going to work and how you're going to be treated in your own safety, but you have to put up with it because your work is so insecure, it's just not on. And this element of this larger issue can be taken away with more secure work, actually having leave entitlement. So you can take time off work, you can get your mental health checked out. You can get yourself checked out and be in a better position overall. You know, I think that is really the crux of it. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks to you for listening and a shout out to all of the casual workers out there. Enough is enough. It's time to stand up and fight back. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.